If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From witchcraft and curses to alchemy and shamanism, there are few more intriguing topics than the history of magic. That's the subject of today's conversation with Chris Gosden, an archaeologist whose new book on the topic traces magical beliefs across the globe from the Ice Age to the present. I spoke to Chris to find out more. Your book covers a vast swathe of time and looks at cultures across the globe and examines uh, magical belief systems. But before we go any further in a discussion about magic, what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about magic? How do you define it? Okay, so um, before I give you a definition, I'll give you some examples of what I'm thinking of as magic. Um, So, for instance, in the Bodleian Library in Oxford University, there are 80,000 astrological diagnoses that were done between the, the late 16th century and about 1660, Um, 60,000 different people came to three different astrologers um, and they asked them a range of questions, often to do with health, uh, but not always, sometimes to do with career choices or illness or a lost child or a whole range of different things. And, And these astrologers, fortunately for us, were very methodical in how they recorded these um, consultations. So for each of them, we have the question, we have an astrological chart, which shows us where various bodies were in the in the, the heavens at the time when a particular event occurred. And then we have what, what they told someone to do as a result of the diagnosis. Um, and these people, one of, one of them was in London, the other two lived in Buckinghamshire, one was a, a vicar, um, and was making money on the side, as it were, through astrology. But there's no hint that they were doing this secretly. It was all very open. Um, one of the people who came along, for instance, was Shakespeare's landlady, who asked a, asked a question. And also, the astrologers themselves were obviously really serious about what they were doing. 
They compared between cases. They said, well, in this case, such and such happened, but, but, and the diagnosis that I gave didn't quite work. So maybe I'll modify it a little bit. So it's almost like, you know, a medical doctor would, would do today. So that's one, that's one European example. And, and astrology went on right through, you know, from as far back as, as we know. And, and nowadays there are uh, astrological apps. So astrology is making a little bit of a comeback, I think. Um, and people are consulting apps, maybe slightly ironically, but they're still, they're still doing it and worrying, you know, how the stars and the moon and the sun are affecting their lives and all those sorts of things. Uh, uh, another example is I worked in Papua New Guinea for quite a long time as an archaeologist um, and a group of people who I knew really well took me out one day to a little area in the rainforest um, where there were some stones lying in the grass and they said you see these stones at certain times the stones can fly around just above the ground and if you know how to read them they will tell you the future. Um, and I said, oh, I'd love to, I'd love to see them fly. And they said, no, no, they wouldn't do it if a white person was here. <laughs> but my definition of magic is it's a human openness to the universe and a universe's openness to people. So in astrology, the assumption is that the movement of the planets, the moon, the, the sun, the stars can influence our health, our well-being, our careers um, in a way that we wouldn't allow for scientifically. Um, and with Papua New Guineans, um, they believe that these stones under certain circumstances can tell them things. So the universe, you know, is communicating with people in that case in very specific ways. And if you're skilled enough and you have to be quite skilled in both cases, then you can you can work out what the universe is telling you and, and indeed how it's influencing you. One of the central tenets of your book is really a, about magic's relationship to science and religion as well, which you describe as a as a triple helix. Can you explain yeah. what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, an older form of thought, so anthropology, say, in the 19th century, um, thought that human intellectual history went from a belief in magic to a belief in religion to a belief in science. And you gave up the previous one as you became more rational and more enlightened. Um, but I don't think that's true. I think throughout a lot of human history, at least, people have believed in a mixture of the three. And there's no reason why one should choose one or two or, or um, you know, uh, over the uh, all three of them. And I think they do different, different things. So religion is obviously a belief in a single God or lots of gods um, and gives us a sense of something beyond the human human, a sense of awe, a sense of you know, something to be uh, taken account of, worshipped, whatever. Science gives you a much more objective view of the world. You try and stand back and you appreciate the forces of the, of the universe in a way that you can render in terms of mathematics or whatever. 
Um, whereas magic, as I say, gives you a much more sort of, you know, it, it connects you to the universe in a way where you feel like you're part of the broader universe. And, and I think all of us at different times feel a bit of each of those things, you know, in our lives. I'm not particularly religious, for instance. Um, but, but there have been occasions where, you know, I can imagine why people are. And certainly, you know, you wouldn't want to dis science that uh, you know as a friend of mine said nobody would want to go back to medieval dentistry it's not a choice it's a it's a combination of the three and it's learning what those different strands of experience and engagement can do and and how we can use them in various different ways so to pick up on your point and dig a little bit deeper on what a point you made there you said that um if we take magic as a worldview of a way of looking at the world, it places a strong emphasis on on human agency and human actions. Can you give some yeah. examples of that? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're if you're um, engaged in witchcraft, and witchcraft comes in all sorts of forms across the the globe, it's it's often not necessarily seen as a bad thing. Um, so there's a group of people called the Azande in, in Central Africa, um, and they believe all accidents and all deaths occur due to witchcraft. Um, so there's a famous example of someone who was sitting under a granary, which was up on stilts, and the granary fell down and killed them. And and so the question for the Azandi, I mean, they sort of accepted science in a sense. They knew that the granary had fallen down because the legs were rotten. But their question was, why had it fallen down when that person was underneath it and killed them? And and therefore they needed to find out who'd done it. And and they and the person who'd done it hadn't done it by any physical, you know, hadn't gone run up and pushed the granary over or any they'd done it by a spell. And and for the Azandi, um, finding out how these things happened were important in learning about tensions within the community, tensions within the village. Across all the very, very diverse um cultures and time periods that you look at in the book did you find yeah. any common or recurring threads about what people have turned to magic for what people used magic for yeah well i mean yeah the answer to that is i have and haven't found so so i mean magic can be used for all the major questions of life and death um so so you know birth well-being during life death what happens after death um you know um, health well-being all of those sorts of things um but there are there are sort of broadly recurring themes and often i think magic is used for more positive purposes than it is for negative purposes so one of the things that we've come to think about magic because we're quite down on magic now is that you know magic is black magic it's doing people harm it's cursing people it's it's causing something bad to happen but actually once you look across the piece a lot of magic is is protective of people and animals it's to do with beneficial transformations getting your plants to grow um getting your metal to to come out properly to to do a whole series of things that will benefit people um and and the whole spectrum of of human life is there which is one of the one of the reasons i really like magic you said there that we've been quite down 
on magic. Yeah. What do you think makes some societies through history and time embrace magic more than others which have denigrated it or rejected it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's broadly Western society that's denigrated it. Um, so, so again, 19th century thinkers thought that the, the movement of Western society, and they hoped any society, was towards rationalism and a rational, you know, empirical understanding of the world. Um, and therefore, things like magic were seen as irrational. Um, they weren't think, uh, areas of life where you could see straightforward cause and effect that could be understood by physics or chemistry or or um, um, biology. Um, so, so for these thinkers, magic was irrational. It was primitive, um, and and to become modern was to give up magic. Uh, but actually, I mean, most people in most times and places, even now believe in magic so so the death of magic has been constantly exaggerated and and i think now in the you know le- from the late 20th century into the 21st maybe we're slightly less enamored of rationalism as the only way to think about the world um, obviously it's good to think about the world rationally occasionally um, but not uh, so, you know our emotional states our psychological states all of those sorts of things are equally important and that's often where magic comes in you're an archaeologist and you take um, the story back a fairly long way shall we say to 40,000 BC um yeah as a historian or an archaeologist, how on earth do you go about reconstructing magical belief systems of cultures which may have um, beliefs completely alien to ours that lived before written records? Yeah, no, well, that's a that's a crucial question and one that's quite hard to to really answer. But uh, well, the, so the interest of the deep past is that it was totally different. So that's a good thing, but also a bad thing because you have to engage in some degree of imaginative reconstruction. So so archaeology prior to written records is often a balance between the evidence and and what we think the evidence might tell us. So so for instance. One of the earliest examples I give in the book uh, is of a little carving of a figure um, found in Germany, about 40,000 years old. And this figure has elements of being a person and also being a lion. But, But thirdly, it's made out of a mammoth's tusk. So in a sense, it combines three different things. There's a bit of mammoth in there, there's a bit of lion in there, there's a bit of person in there. And maybe, and this is where the you know imaginative reconstruction comes in, maybe some of the powers of those three animals were combined in some way. Um, so this thing's got a lion's head, but a sort of broadly human figure. And and also the genitalia seem to have been detachable. So it could have been male at some points and, and female. Uh, so it's, a, it's quite a complex figure. It's certainly not a sort of practical thing. You know, you didn't bash saber-toothed tigers on the head with it or whatever. So So that takes us into something that we might call magic. So I'm pretty sure that you could you could discuss things this thing in terms of magical properties that it's looking at the powers of other animals looking at the powers of humans and maybe giving human beings some of the power of the lion some of the power of the of the mammoth and and playing around 
and with gender as well, mixing up male and female and all of those sorts of things. That lion figurine is one of several really interesting objects that you you look at in the book. Um, Can you give us some of the other examples of magical objects or manuscripts that you personally find really interesting? Um, I So I worked in the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford for ages, and there's loads of magical stuff in there. So one of my favourite objects is a is an onion from a pub chimney in, in a place called Wellington in Somerset. Um, it was one of four onions that fell out of the chimney in, in 1872, and a bunch of people were in the pub drinking. And on each of these onions was a piece of paper pinned to the onion with, with metal pins, and each piece of paper had someone's name on and it turns out that the people whose some of the people whose names were on these onions were temperance campaigners who were trying to get the pub closed down and and the landlord of the pub um had a bit of a reputation as a wizard as he was described then and it seems very likely that he was trying to harm the temperance campaigners who were trying to harm him through taking him to court and so on um but but instead of taking them to court he stuck onions up his chimney and 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 uh, we're guessing as the onions dried out it was hope he hoped that the people whose names were attached to the onions uh, um, would also come to some sort of harm, maybe shrivel up, become less powerful or effective. And, and I just love, you know, something as, as everyday as an onion suddenly becomes magically transformed and, and a little bit of sort of, again, village politics, that it was broadly the middle classes against a working class drinking establishment. And sometimes things like magic have been described as the weapons of the weak. So, so sticking sticking onions up chimneys is is not something you probably do if you feel very powerful. Um, but if you if it's your only recourse, then then you're hoping that you know your pub will stay open, you'll be able to earn a living, and and everything will be right with the world. That idea of um, magic being a weapon for the weak, I think, is really fascinating. And something else I was intrigued to read about in your book was how magical practices in um, the Americas and Africa and Australia tied into colonialism and the history of that. Can you explain the link that you, you draw there? Yes, there are a variety of instances. I mean, in, in every continent, people have had magic again for a long, long time. But probably the major, a major historical force in many parts of the world since 1492, since Columbus, has been colonialism. So people have attempted to resist colonialism. And often that was hard to do because the colonialists had better weapons and disease and all those sorts of things. So people did try other means. So, so there's an instance, say, in, in what is present-day Indonesia, um, where people tried to use magic to, when it was invaded by the Dutch at the beginning of the 20th century and, and became colonised in, in a formal sense. People tried to, to create magic that would protect them from Dutch bullets. So it was thought that the bullets might hit them but wouldn't go through their, into their skin. 
Now, you know, whether how effective this was, one would have to wonder, but, but people believed it sincerely. And it's part of a sort of broader magic in that area where people can um, walk on fire, um, dance on swords, do a whole range of different things, w- which we would normally consider to be harmful, but weren't, they thought. And in this case, that that magic was repurposed in order to, to make it easier and more effective to fight the Dutch and their weapons. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. A crucial question that all humans face is how does the universe work and how do I position myself within that universe? And magic is part of the ways in which people have puzzled their way through the universe. Something that I did want to ask you about from the book is you you reconstruct what the experience of shamanism on the Eurasian steppe might have been like. Yeah. The shaman is is a very kind of intriguing figure to many. Can you tell us about yeah. what that role involved? Yeah. So so shamanism is a is a tricky subject because people invoke the figure of the shaman in many 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 times and places. But I I think if you're going to be a bit more sort of historically accurate about this, um, then the term shaman comes from Siberian languages, um, and it refers to a figure who was able to deal more or less safely with the spirit world. Um, so, so for, for Siberian and indigenous Siberian people, if something goes wrong, like your reindeer start dying, that's not what we might think. It's not a disease, you know, sort of germ borne disease. It's something goes wrong in the, that's gone wrong in the spirit world. And the shaman is the one member of the community who has the ability and the strength to enter the spirit world negotiate battle whatever the term is with the spirits and in that case try to stop them um making the reindeer sick and if they're if they're successful and they're not always you know like any area of life they're not always successful sometimes they don't come back from the spirit world sometimes they come back and the spirits aren't interested but but they can sort of transform themselves into into spirits into animals um and and journey into other realms of reality to to encounter those and and often also in those cultures um all plants animals rocks or whatever are human so this is a very different view of the universe to ours where we'd make a distinction between animate and inanimate human and not for for siberian cultures and also in fact for north american cultures um then the whole universe in some way is human so you negotiate with those other elements of the universe as you would with a human being but i mean some of those humans are quite dangerous humans like bears are not you know not easy to negotiate with a bear and and most of the time it doesn't end end well but just maybe if you're you know if you're a shaman and you can enter the body of a bear then you can engage in a bear-like way with the bear spirits um another culture that you look at that had a really um integrated i guess would be the word um relationship with with nature and the environment is um 
the Australian Aboriginal culture and you look at yeah. song lines, can you explain yeah. what, what the thinking behind those are and explain a bit more about them? For Aboriginal people, in some sense, they don't live on the land, they are the land and the land is them. So so many people have a notion, or, or a, Aboriginal people have a notion of, of a period in the past where the land was formed by ancestral spirits, doing things in the land, moving across the land, forming waterholes, rocks, you know, outcrops, hills, valleys, all of those sorts of things. Um, and their culture isn't so much about the land as it comes from the land so songs are songs from the land and if you sing then you're evoking the land not just in its physical sense but even more importantly in its spiritual sense so there are lines across australia which Europeans have come to call song lines, where people can evoke the landscape, but in its spiritual aspect. And it's it's thought, I mean, it's quite hard for Europeans to really grasp this, and nobody's quite sure how far, you know, how far we have. But it may be that the the physical shape of the land and the rhythm of the song are one and the same in the some some way. So the rhythm of the song evokes or reproduces the, the, the structure, the topography of the, of the landscape. So these things are often now called, in Western terms, song lines. And they do go for thousands of kilometres across the continent. And people can sing about bits of Australia that they've never been to. But they understand through song, through dance, through mythology. So it's a, it's a totally different conception of the world. I think for, for Westerners, it, it can, as you say, be quite hard to get your head around that because it's a completely different way of approaching things. And a question that I would have from all the things we've just discussed, and it's perhaps a bit of a nerdy practice of history type question, is how are you deciding what here is categorised as magic and rather than, say, culture or religion? Because... If you put on a different pair of spectacles, you could see those song lines as, as a form of religious practice um, if you yeah. wanted to. How are you yeah. categorising yeah. those? Yeah, and people have seen song lines as religious. I, I don't think they are because I don't think there's a God involved. So, so my definition of religion is fairly straightforward in the sense that there has to be some form of deity. Now, you could potentially see the ancestral spirits as deities, but I don't think they really are, and I don't think they're worshipped, and they're and they're sort of part of people as well as as well as you know external forces. Having said that, I don't think there's any really fine dividing line between magic and religion. So, so Keith Thomas, for instance, in Religion and De Decline of Magic, he described the Catholic Church as this enormous mechanism for the production of magic. And, and, and so, you know, people did things like they, it, during the mass, they would keep a bit of the host under their tongue and take it home and give it to a sick cow with the hope that they would, they would cure their cow. Now, 
that's that's right on the you know obviously there's religious belief in there but i think there's also magical belief so i think the thing about magic religion and science is that they do blend into each other i think there there are areas of each that are separate enough to consider them to be separate um but but i think also there's you know you, you you don't want to worry i didn't worry too much about where one stopped and the other started of course they have often been um put in conflict with one another and many societies have been um not just ambivalent towards magic but afraid of it and antagonistic towards it how has that played out in some historical settings yeah i think I think most many cultures have have some ambivalence towards so you could say um with ancient Greece and Rome now they obviously had very well developed religious beliefs they had their pantheon of of gods that we all know about from Jupiter downwards in the in the 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 Roman sense but also they had very well developed magic they were very good at cursing for instance so they would you know curse each other to to try and do harm to each other or you know an opposing chariot team would would come to harm through a curse or whatever so I think I think in that case there was um, magic was practiced all the time by all sorts of people but there was an ambivalence about it I think probably only in the last of couple of centuries in Europe as magic got a really bad press Um, and magic was driven underground much more it was seen to be primitive thought and then it was also embraced by people who were into counterculture so so people like Alistair Crowley really liked magic because it it inverted a whole range of things that that polite society liked so so it's sort of it's slightly cut both ways mainstream society looked down on magic and those that were ambivalent about mainstream society tried to develop black magic in that case to to you know affront confront mainstream society but i think i think that that real sort of antagonism towards magic is is relatively recent and relatively historically unusual um so so in somewhere like mesopotamia um people observed the heavens and the basis of astronomy ultimately goes back to mesopotamian observations but but they did that for astrological purposes so so there was a bit of a bit of both in there really and and for many people they didn't quite have these categories and didn't worry you know whether they were practicing magic or practicing science um, you spoke there about more recent adopters of magic. And of course, as, as your book highlights, magic is actually far from a thing of the past for many people. And it still plays an integral role in a lot of societies around the world. Can you give some examples? Yeah, so uh, well, one one piece of evidence of its its widespread nature is if you ask you know surveys that are done on magic actually a surprising number of people often three quarters of people in places like the states and britain admit to having some sort of magical belief they believe in ghosts they believe in possession they believe in psychic healing you could heal people at a distance all of those sorts of things and and i think as people have become more and more worried about what western 
approaches to the world are doing to the world, then people have started to embrace magical practices more. So, so Wiccan beliefs, Druidism, a whole range of things. Some people are convinced of magical practices. Other people are interested, but maybe still slightly skeptical. But I think as, as it's not exactly a decline in the belief in science, but a worry about what we're doing to the planet through technical and rather sort of overly scientific means, then people are again starting to explore the spirit world, the, the, the astrology, a whole range of a whole range of different things, ghosts. And what about outside the Western world? Um, I wonder if there are examples of cultures that magic traditions still exist in. Yeah, I think almost everywhere. So, so, so one of the things about Papua New Guinea is that there are all, all these magics, which may or may not be old. It's hard to know, but there's stuff that's definitely new. So people have got forms of sorcery that they'll use to get their kids into university. Um, so, so you know, middle class worries about getting your kid an education and you know ultimately a good job and all those sorts of things meet what we might see as an outmoded form of belief, but not to Papua New Guineans, you know. So, as well as filling in their their application forms, they'll also be doing various different things to try and convince the the the, the lecturers at the university to let their kid in and, and not somebody else's. So, I think one of the great things about magic is that it, it is you know constantly being reinvented it's not some sort of past old substrate of belief people are developing new forms of magic all the time um this is a bit of a million dollar question but why is all of this so important to study what does looking at magic and magical beliefs tell us about different societies across global history yeah. Well, I think, I think I'd answer that in two different ways. So in, on the one hand, I think because magic is, is so deep historically, because it's global and all pervasive, um, if you miss magic out of consideration of human history, you lose a really important strand of what it means to be human. So, so we've written lots of religious histories, we've his, written histories of rational thought, of science, of all those sorts of things. But by and large, our, our histories of magic are, are very partial or, or lacking. So, so if magic is a dimension of what it means to be human, we have to include it in global history or else we miss out quite important things. But, but also, and the second strand of my answer would be, I think in the present, um, magical beliefs may have an importance to all of us in the sense that they give us a connection to the world that we might otherwise lack, that we can, through magic, feel some sort of kinship with the world, a moral connection with the world, a moral obligation to the world. And, and in a time of you know epidemiological and ecological crisis, then I think more and more of us are thinking that maybe our relationship to the world ain't that great, and we should be exploring other ways of relating. After studying all these um, different cultures and belief systems and the way that they have played out throughout history, how do you think that we need to amend our view of magic's role in history? 
we need to be more positive about it, broadly speaking. It's not irrational. It's not primitive. It's not something that should be consigned to the past. It's part of human inventiveness. It's part of our... So, so a, a crucial question that all humans face is how does the universe work and how do I position myself within that universe and magic is part of the ways in which people have puzzled their way through the universe that was Chris Gosden his book the history of magic from alchemy to witchcraft from the ice age to the present is out now published by viking A version of this interview with Chris appears in the August issue of BBC History magazine. That's out now and also includes features on survival secrets of medieval dynasties, Emperor Nero, urban myths of Victorian London and plenty more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday when Hannah Murray will be speaking about black abolitionists in Victorian Britain. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.